0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to go over the next possible Mormon theodicy. Last time we went over what's termed Mormon finitism, and we went over what the basic view entails, and then some of the criticisms or weaknesses of that view. Next we're going to talk about another possibility, which you call a Mormon process theodicy. And you recall back in volume one, we, would, we discussed process thought a little bit, just juxtaposing it with classical notions of God. So we talked about the basic layout of it, but we're going to now do that in a Mormon context and what is possible for that so before we do that though you spell out a few terms here just to help us orient ourselves so I'll just read that real quickly you put theism is the view that God transcends the natural order because God is its creator ex nihilo God is therefore logically prior to all else that exists so that's kind of the classical notion of God Next would be pantheism, which is the view that God is identical with the natural order. And we don't really have a, at least not that you develop, a a Mormon view of that where God literally is the universe, basically. Then there's finitism, which is what we discussed last time, and again that's the view that God exists with a prior existing natural order in which God is subject. God is logically subsequent to the law-like order already present in the natural universe given that view of finitism now what we're going to talk about is panentheism which is the view that god is imminent in reality and all reality is embodied in god and we're going to explain what that means more but just that for now and then panentheism maintains that god is as eternal as the universe or multiverse if you prefer and whatever order exists is a result of god's influence and so you would say in this god logically coexists with the universe And that's, again, comparing to being before the universe in classical view or after the universe in finite view. So now we're talking about with the universe. First, we're going to go over how Mormonism could arrive at this process theodicy. Well, I guess first process thought also, at least in because we're going to be talking about how this view of God and how he relates to the universe, if it is in this way, how it solves or deals with the problem of evil that we've been talking about in all of these theodicies. I guess that's what a theodicy mainly is for, is to say how these evils are happening and how God can still exist. First you say to develop how a Mormon could come to this process view. A prominent trajectory of Mormon thought concludes that God is imminent in all realities in the universe as creative power and co-source of order in all things. And this comes from Joseph Smith's revelation recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants section 88 which basically states that God is in and through all things as the power that gives all realities the law of their movements. That is, God is the organizing power of all things by which the universe exists as a cosmos rather than chaos because God's light is imminent in all things. I guess before we go further, define what imminence means.
1: Imminence means
0: that God is present to all things as power
1: and knowledge and ability to act at that place. So God is imminent in all things. Let me give an analogy. So the light of the sun proceeds from the sun created by the nuclear explosions and fusion taking place there. And the photons travel from the sun to the earth, and then they act upon leaves that create a process of photosynthesis so that the light of the sun is actually in the energy of the leaf. So we would say that the sun is imminent in the leaf in, in the, the fact that it is present in the power and life of the leaf, by analogy.
0: Makes sense. All right, and now we'll kind of track the trajectory of a few Mormon thinkers and how kind of their thought can lead us into a Mormon version of this process theodicy. And, well, I guess up front. So process thought is something that has mainly attributed to a person named Alfred North Whitehead and was further developed by Charles Hartshorn. They came from evangelical backgrounds or, you know, something along those lines, believing people that came up with this kind of on their own views of, like, science and logic and philosophy and stuff like that. So this is not something directly from Mormonism, but Mormonism could adopt at least the major points of it. This is kind of how we could get to it. So the thinkers are the Pratt's, Orson and Parley Pratt, and B.H. Roberts. So. We'll start with the Prats. You say, the Prats adopted a form of what's called panpsychism, which is the view that mental properties are inherent in all physical realities to some degree. They viewed the nature of intelligences as defined by their ability to be interpenetrated with and give some level of active power by the light of God that is in and through all things. However, the intelligences also eternally have some level of active power on their own. So they're kind of to some degree of self determining. And again, so intelligence, as we're getting, you know, just in Mormon thought, that is the idea from Joseph Smith that the basic constituents or intelligence, the things that things are made of, is, it's called intelligence and it's uncreated and is co existent with God, meaning it's eternal as well as God is eternal. The Prats just have this view that all levels of existence have some sort of, not will, I guess, but volition, or I don't know what you'd call it. So, in addition, each of the intelligent particles acts upon and influences each other. Human intelligence and individuality arose only with the organization of these more basic intelligences. Thus, they held that human intelligences had a beginning when they were organized by God to form spirits. These spirits are then embodied in human flesh to become mortals. So, that's kind of the Pratt's view which it's kind of interesting because I think, at least I read somewhere, that they kind of viewed like intelligences go up through this chain of like being microscopic organisms up through maybe plants and then animals. And then uh, the highest form that they can get to is... Well, there's a full range of intelligences. It's not like
1: an intelligence is an animal. An intelli- an animal's made up of intelligences, if you will.
0: Yeah, they're kind of what is termed an atomist. At least at the time, you know, the science was the smallest thing is an atom, so they're like, okay, let's just say atoms are the smallest form of intelligence, and then as you get more complex, obviously the more complex the intelligence. That makes sense. Anyway, that's just there to juxtapose with this. So, similar views were later developed by B.H. Roberts, who was a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, and he maintained that God is imminent in every part of nature as its organizing power, and also that every part of nature is also imminent in God. But unlike the Pratts, who held that individual identity had a beginning with the organization of lower-grade intelligences, Roberts held that each individual human identity was uncreated and eternally existed as an intelligence. So it's kind of, I mean, this is like a philosophical term, but it's kind of this idea of the Cartesian mind, or basically that the, the mind of man. You get this from Joseph Smith's teaching that the mind of man has always existed, as far as we are concerned, you know, our individual selves, and it cannot be created. God didn't create it. He doesn't have the power to create it because we, you know, you can't create that kind of thing. It just is self-existing. As opposed to being made up of intelligences, if you will, there's a kind of intelligence that is a mind, which is us, and that's always existed. So that's the difference there. Anyway, he says each intelligence eternally had properties of intelligence, moral volition, Consciousness of self and the external world, and ability to deliberate, think, and imagine. And further, Roberts clearly saw that the existence of such essentially free intelligences placed some sort of conditions on both God's power and his knowledge. And I just want to read a quote from him, and then I'll be on more about this. So, he said, When then is meant by the ascription of the attribute of omnipotence to God? Simply that all that may or can be done by power conditioned by other eternal existences, such as duration, space, matter, truth, justice, reign of law, God can do. But even he may not act out of harmony with other eternal existence, which condition or limit even him. Uh, And I guess just one more you say, in addition, Roberts recognized that the fact that God's knowledge depends on experiencing what has and presently exists and tells also that God's knowledge is progressing and growing as the present unfolds in becoming what was once future. So, you know, obviously he's been a big influence on some of your ideas as well, at least, you know, the beginnings of them. So God doesn't know the future. His power is conditioned by all these things. I guess just to sum up, if you will, what further ideas of Roberts could help develop a process thought in Mormonism?
1: Robert's actually had kind of two inconsistent theodicies that he built in. One is that God voluntarily limits his power to make room for free will, and it was more of a standard kind of a theodicy that we would find among Protestants. And so God willingly would allow others to have a space in which they could make choices and exercise opposition. The second is that the limitations are built into reality and that God doesn't have a choice about it. He's not self-limiting. He's actually limited and he has no choice about whether the limitations exist or not. But his primary theodicy is based upon the fact that God has certain goals that he wants to obtain. He's working with eternal intelligences to reach those goals. Intelligences have only certain capacities that are not within God's power to change and of course god doesn't create ex nihilo or out of nothing and so when god acts he's acting in a way to maximize the opportunities for the higher grade intelligences to progress and thus what he's giving us is kind of a very straightforward free will defense within mormonism coupled with the limitations of natural law that are binding upon god roberts believed that god did not have complete foreknowledge he doesn't have omnipotence per se. There are things that are logically possible, but God can't do them because of the natural realities that obtain that are prior to God's will. And so God is working within those parameters.
0: I mean, this will be evident, but it's important to get out in front here. So in process thought, if I haven't said this already, because of the nature of God's power is not what I guess you'd call physical, or more importantly, it's not coercive. It's only persuasive, meaning God, I don't know, we'll get to this in a minute, but we'll just define it here, so let's say that the source of I don't even know I don't think we could even call it power, perhaps in process, basically God's power is not power per se that we would think about it as in power over something, but it's more like power to persuade maximal influence, if you will um and I guess a good analogy would be or just something to think about is let's say you have an an opponent and there's physical power where you could overpower them and or physically you know make them submit to you and then they're doing it but they're begrudgingly and they're not really on your side they're just doing it because you have power over them or there's persuasive power if you could win their heart and their mind then you know that's a morally superior version of what we call power and it's actually you know actually more effective because you've actually had more influence anyway that's kind of the idea. Some of that will get better explained here when we go over this next part. So this next part is you lay out the basic commitments of what would be entailed in a Mormon process, the Odyssey. And, I mean, I'll put this in the notes because you'd probably have to read it to get the most out of it. So make sure you read over it, but I'm just going to read it so that we can talk about it. Does that work for you, Dad? I actually
1: believe that's the best way to proceed and then we can kind of comment because what I'm doing is kind of setting up the basic metaphysical commitments that are inherent in a Mormon process view. This is not a standard process view. This is a Mormon process view that is based upon the insights of the Pratt's and B. H. Roberts and that, that are based upon their reading of Joseph Smith's revelations.
0: So I'll just start reading that, and then, yeah, you can interject where you want. Uh, Just like you said, given the basic commitments of Mormon theology, we can elucidate a complete, and what you say is, is what you believe, a generally satisfying process theodicy. The theodicy can be created by adopting a, the Pratt brothers' recognition that all of reality is constituted of basic realities that manifest some level of intelligence, and therefore have independent power to act on their own, which cannot be controlled by God, and B, Robert's recognition that such limitations condition God's power and knowledge, and C, the recognition of both the Pratts and Roberts that God's power is always exercised as co creative power, so that God cannot unilaterally bring about any state of affairs without cooperation of the eternal realities with which he is working. The basic structure of the process theodicy to deal with the global argument from evil is as follows. Number one, God's purpose in organizing the world is to bring the intelligences to share the fullness of his glory and thereby to deify both the personal intelligences and the entire world to the extent each has the capacity to receive God's light in order to maximize the flourishing and enjoyment of experience of each reality in the world. You know, you'll recognize some of that's from the book of Moses it's his work in the glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. so that's god's purpose overall all right then two there are eternal realities with which god must work to achieve his purpose including a continuum of intelligences that ranges from those essentially having some minimal level of freedom for the simplest low-grade intelligences you know we can think about as just actual basic realities like atoms molecules that kind of thing all the way up to full moral and self-determining freedom for higher level and complex intelligences, namely us, I would imagine. Number three, God acts in relation to intelligences of all grades by granting the grace of his imminent light, which A, may be incorporated to a greater or lesser extent into becoming in each moment of each entity's existence, B, provides co-power to each basic reality to become part of an organized entity, Abiding a law like governance. C provides a vivifying energy to the extent accepted by that entity. D provides an organizing co power which empowers high grade intelligences or persons to organize their experience into a synthetic whole of conscious experience and have capacity for free will to act as a self determining agent.
1: So let me break that down right now because it's going to get complicated if we don't. So take a piece of paper and write four lines of dots with five dots across, and then draw lines from each dot to all the other dots. And here's the notion. In process thought, every reality influences every other reality. But the influence they have, some is greater than others, and so those that are the closest, you you draw the biggest lines because they have the greatest influence. The ones that are farther away still have some influence, but it's not as great. And then you put at the top a huge dot, and then you have this general light that is cast on every single dot by the dot that's up at the top. It'd be nice if you had a light just put up there that casts light on everything. And so we'll call that God's general lure. What God does is he gives his initial aim, which is a lure to everything, to adopt his will for what will occur with that individual moment. And so, what happens essentially is that God is the greatest influence on every single reality, but every single reality is related to every other reality. And that's just a moment. In every single moment, just take one dot and put dots all around it and draw lines from just some dots to that dot. That would be what we call an actual occasion. And the actual occasion will be a moment of creativity. And that will incorporate some of the influences that are there. And exclude others. This is kind of analogous to free will because it's sheer creativity. What's included and what's excluded, it's not up to God. He's only giving His influence as one type of influence to be embodied into this momentary occasion. And by an occasion, I mean this is just a moment. In the next moment, it's going to transform from what it is in this moment to what it will be in the next moment. And what it does is it incorporates some of its past history into the next moment and the influences of things that are acting upon it, and excludes some and includes others. And this is what we mean by a momentary occasion, and each new moment, the occasion is recreating itself with both its prior history of what it is, and the influence of everything around it, and God acting on everything together to move it in a direction that he wills. But whether it does that or not is not up to God. Because the ultimate reality is the creativity in each of these individual occasions which we can say is is one of these dots. And the dot is just a moment in time of the most simple reality. And so that would be what we're talking about in terms of process thought generally, which those are called actual occasions, but in process thought we're talking in terms of intelligences. But it still would be the case that every intelligence is related to every other intelligence And God's light is analogous to the initial aim in process thought, which is being embodied into every intelligence, anew in every moment to a greater or lesser extent, and every influence is either being accepted or rejected to a greater or lesser extent. So then this new moment of creativity becomes something that's never been before, and it's just a, a moment of becoming something new. So let me put this into concrete realities. Take yourself. You're not the same person. Let's say that you're 40 years of age. You're not the same person you were when you were five, you had the same DNA. There will be some remnants that are left over from you at age five, maybe some memories that have continued, probably altered somewhat from when you were five. There will be molecules in your body that are really descendants of the ancestors of when you were five, but you're not the same person. In each new moment, you're becoming a new person, and people like us in process thought are called conglomerates. That just means a whole bunch of occasions put together that then the dominant mode of acting for that occasion is not each individual acting on its own, but there's an overall direction that they follow from their past. And so a person would be this conglomerate. What we're saying is that as a certain level of organization, the intelligence has become sufficiently complex in the organization that the kind of consciousness that we experience as human beings arises. So what we would say is that it arises from the complexity of the brain and the neural cortex because of the kind of organization and the brain just happens to be the most complex reality that we know in the entire universe. And this is true. The human brain is the most complex and the most highly organized reality that we know. And so consciousness at this kind of level of organization arises to be the consciousness of a person that gives rise to a new level of free will and a new level of choice and a new level of consciousness. So that's what's being packed in there. all of that's packed into the what we just said.
0: all right, and then number four is and this is important: God cannot of metaphysical necessity unilaterally coerce the intelligences of any grade to receive his light, and therefore the action of God's light on the world is necessarily persuasive and alluring rather than coercive and controlling. in addition, persuasive power is generally morally superior. To coercive power. For example, if you look up Doctrine and Covenants 121, verse 41, is that where it talks about the power of the priesthood being by persuasion, or is that something else?
1: It it talks about the power of love unfeigned. What it says is no power, influence, can, or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge. So what it's saying is that when God exercises his power, And most people don't get this. This is the amazing thing about the power of the priesthood. The power of priesthood is the persuasive power of love and kindness and meekness and gentleness. That's the real power. That's the greatest power in the universe. That's the power of the priesthood. And so when God acts, he acts in this way because it's not merely the greatest power in terms of the most forceful power or the greatest and most efficacious power. It is the greatest power because it is the most effective power in terms of God's overall purposes and plans. The only way that we can bring about what God is up to is through this kind of loving kindness that Joseph Smith said would be the defining reality of the power of the priesthood, which is the power through which God acts.
0: Okay, great. All right, then number five is there are metaphysically necessary correlations between power and And value of experience entailed in the idea of opposition in all things, which you'll recognize as a term from the Book of Mormon, the Book of Second Nephi, chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. This anyway, I guess we explain here. So, such that a, the capacity to freely bring about good is correlative of the capacity to freely bring about evil and suffering for others. Meaning, if you have this capacity to be free, you also have this capacity to do wrong. B The capacity to enjoy intrinsic goodness is correlative to the power to suffer intrinsic evil, and C, the power to influence others for good is correlative of the power to influence for bad, and D, the capacity to freely choose to love is correlative of the capacity to freely reject and resist others. So, you know, that's kind of just a technical way of going over those verses. Uh, If you'll recall, in the Book of Mormon, Lehi, kind of what some have termed Lehi's theodicy, where... They're basically talking about, you know, how there must be an opposition in all things. And if, if there weren't, like, there can't be reality if you don't, you know, if, you, if everything's compounded one, as he said, it would be the other alternative, then there is, that's, that's nothing, that's not being. But to separate these things out and have the opportunity to be free, it just happens to logically give rise to the opportunity to do bad things. So, I don't know, what else you have to say there?
1: Well, it's just obvious. If you have the power to help somebody by giving them a hand and pulling them up, you have enough power to knock them down. okay? If you have enough power to act in such a way to effectuate great change, then you also have the power to effectuate change for either the good or the bad. And so when we say that power is correlative, it means that if the power to do good entails also the physical power to do evil. If I have the power, to save a young girl who's being attacked by somebody from the attack, I also have power to attack her. This is the notion of correlative power that we're talking about.
0: And then number six, persons require opposition and challenges to be able to make free choices such that they can grow towards God's likeness and deification. And that's, again, from there must be an opposition in all things. And, you know, this is kind of an echo of the soul-building theodicy, just that, you know, people recognize that Overcoming problems and moral situations builds character.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think it is clear.
0: I mean, there's another way
1: to say this, and, and that is that we only grow when we're not inside the comfort zone. We grow when we're dis- uncomfortable, and we have discomfort in our lives, and it's the discomfort, the sense that we've got to do something to right a wrong, or we've got to do something to improve ourselves, that's when growth takes place. If we're perfectly happy with ourselves, then we're, we're going to be really passive and not get things done. So that's the notion, I think.
0: Uh, and then seven, God acts in the world by seeking to persuade individuals and every aspect of reality to actualize the optimal realization of possibilities that are open for them to co-actualize.
1: Yeah, so what we're talking about here is, again, God sheds his light on every reality. And God's light is imminent in every reality, but it's up to the realities to which this light is given as a sheer grace, a sheer gift, to determine whether to accept the light that God has offered or not. To the extent we accept the light of God, we're made over in God's image. We are influenced by the divine persuasion. We embody into ourselves the light of Christ, and we are made over into Christians because that's the influence that's giving us life. We've talked about this earlier. It's the concept of Zoe. What gives us life, that Zoe is Greek for life, what is giving us life is the light of God. And so we accept this into our life to be a part of our life, to, be, to become, it's like the food that we eat. The food that we eat becomes the energy of our ourselves and, and the material from which our bodies are made. If we accept God's light, it becomes the energy of our lives expressed in our cells and makes us over so that what we're doing is reflecting God's will for us in our very being. Now, when we say accept the light of God, what we're saying is to be open to revelation, to be open to that influence, and then to be open to reflect what God would have us do, to bring about loving acts so that we reflect the love of God that is being given to us through the light of God. And that's the kind of thing that I think we're talking about here.
0: And then number eight, the process of integrating God's light by which the world is glorified fully with celestial glory and persons are deified with a fullness of divine light is an eternal process that was ongoing before this life and continues into eternity after this mortal life. It cannot be brought to a fullness of fruition in a single mortal lifetime because God's glory is an ever-increasing expansion of possibilities and there is no upper limit to such progress by its very nature.
1: So no matter how bright the light is, it can get brighter, and it's always getting brighter. God's goal is that the level of light will increase throughout the universe, and when we have perfectly embodied the level of light that he's given to us, there will be another level of light to which he bids us to reach, and this will be ongoing for all eternity. And so it's not like a game of golf where the upper limit is 18. The best score you can get on an 18-hole golf course is 18. That's the upper limit. This is more like the actual number of real numbers to which there is no limit, (laughs) okay? doesn't matter how large your number
0: is, you can always choose a larger number,
1: and no matter where you are, you can always grow. So that's what that's
0: referring to. Okay, and then the last one here is God's perfection is eternally self-surpassing. However, at any given moment, God is the most advanced of all and incorporates into his being a fullness of experience, and knowledge derived from the experiences of all existing realities this notion is sometimes called panexperientialism by process thinkers
1: so what we're looking at here is that god perfectly incorporates into his being a memory of every human experience but not just human experience the experience of every minute bit of reality and it is fully taken into his being He has a fullness of knowledge derived from experience and a part of what the process view is aiming to maximize is the enjoyment of experience per se. It's almost an aesthetic quality. It's like the quality of listening to a great opera, or if you don't like opera, seeing a great painting, or if you're not into painting, watching a great football game and watching the perfect pass. There is this beauty, there is this quality that just gives us such joy and it's inherent in experience and God's fullness of experiences is complete in every moment and becomes completer in the next moment. And so what we're after are experiences and what this does is I'm going to make a statement and I'm not going to expand on it a lot but it will be food for thought. This deifies the notion of having experiences because experiences deify us. It makes having experiences the ultimate goal which means that life is a no-lose proposition because we come here to have experiences, and merely by having experiences we've already won, no matter what the experiences are. Every experience is for our good, according to Section 121, and will be for our benefit. Imagine having a fully conscious experience where you're just taking in the, the fall colors, or you're looking at the ocean, or you're, you look into the eyes of your child, and you see the beauty of the life that, that has been given as a gift and created, Or you look into the eyes of your wife or your husband and you see the most amazing person possible. That's the kind of experiences we're talking about, these kind of, the apex of all human experience. And God enjoys our experience. He participates in it. It's a part of his experience. So everything that we experience gets taken into God's experience because we're also included within his experience. And so he experiences immediately all of our experiences. And so whatever we're experiencing gets included within his knowledge and experience. And he loves it when we have beautiful experiences. He loves when we grow. He loves when we learn new things because this is a part of his experience that gives him joy.
0: And then, I mean, I kind of already said this, but we'll, I'll just read this to sum it up He say, so this view provides that God has immense persuasive power to act on all things in the universe or multiverse, whatever there is that exists, as co-creative power. However, God does not have coercive power, not that he's self-limiting, like in some views you know it's not like he has the power and he's just choosing not to exercise it because it's his plan the power of god is not a coercive power on this view god acts by granting the grace of his light which he offers for incorporation into individuals to the extent freely accepted to a greater lesser degree this light conveys knowledge intelligence information vivifying power which vivifying is life you know power of life and organizing energy however it is only one influence among many to be chosen to be incorporated into the experience of the intelligences. And I think, you know, this can make sense to us, obviously, uh, often in, I mean, Christians too, in general, but in Mormonism, you know, we often talk about the still small voice, or, you know, that's how God communicates to us through the Holy Spirit. It's this voice that you have to kind of be attuned to, to listen, and if you are, it can help guide you and, and know what to do. And when, you, when you're when you in sync with that voice or influence then you're in what's called i don't know as creative person i'm a creative person and we call this flow you know when you're in this flow of just being what you're supposed to be i don't know living with the spirit is kind of the same idea and so that's what god's trying to do for you but there's other influences and just like with the i don't know we have this old analogy in like sunday school of like let's say the inside of you is kind of like a radio and It has to be on the right frequency to pick up what God's giving to you, but you could turn the dial and listen to rock and roll music, or you could turn the dial and listen to some talk radio. depends on what you're letting in with the right frequency.
1: And think about it this way. I mean, when we are feeling the Spirit, we're feeling the beauty and joy of God entering into us and making us over in His image. It's an amazing thing. Now, there's also this sense, and I want to emphasize this, Given persuasive power, process thought predicts and and requires that change occurs over long periods of time because the individual intelligences only partially embody the lure or the aim that God has as the influence that he gives to each moment or each intelligence. And so it takes great amounts of time for large changes to take place. What process thought predicts, as a matter of fact, is that change in biological systems Will take place through an evolutionary process over vast amounts of time. So this is a philosophy that arose, and in part was reflecting a, a recognition of the theory of evolution, and asking two things. Because it arose because Alfred North Whitehead, who is kind of the fountainhead of this view, he was at Harvard when he developed it. He was familiar with. He, I mean, he was a great mathematician and, and very familiar with physics. It was asking, what are we talking about when we're now talking about the most basic realities being both a wave and a particle, and that we can't really predict where it is, given both the velocity and location at the same time. So he was aware of quantum physics. He was also aware of the theory of evolution. So what he's doing is coming up with a theory, a metaphysical theory, that is explaining the new physics and that is consonant with the biological sciences. And so I wouldn't say that he came up with this metaphysics, then he predicted there'd be evolution and then evolution was discovered. But they were kind of developing together, if you will. They were having a a symbiotic influence on each other is the way to put it. And what that means is, is they were just mutually influencing each other. And so this is a view that is very consonant with science as we know it. It's very consonant with the kind of things that we actually see occurring in the natural world. And one of the strengths of this view is that it makes it possible to explain change in a metaphysical way that is consistent with what we actually experience in the real world. And it's a very sophisticated way of explaining change at the most basic level of reality that is then manifest in macro structures like plants and animals. And so what we're looking at is that we have this view that requires that change in biological systems takes place over very long periods of time. Now, it could happen very rapidly, but that would be because all the intelligences somehow, for some reason, get together and all agree with God's initial aim, and then they could embody his will very quickly. But generally, they're only partially accepting what God is, is aiming for them to do, and his influence is only partially embodied in these realities. And so it just takes a long time to realize his will. Over aeons of time, his will will be realized, but it could take a while. All
0: right, and then you point out something here. They say that this Mormon version that you've developed, or shed light on, I guess, if you will, has actually some advantages over the standard process view. You say, those who promote standard process views must address the issue as to why God would lure higher-order realities into existence when the capacity for such greater evil is inherent in the correlative power of the more highly organized realities. Basically saying, you know, well, because God doesn't have foreknowledge on, the, on their view, and thus he could not know whether the universe would evolve in, into a reality worth having, a world where evil far outstrips the good sought by God, but which could not be guaranteed.
1: Yeah, we could say he literally took one hell of a risk, is, is a good way to put it, with emphasis on the fact this could become a hell.
0: Yeah, so like the kind of, you know, a lot of process thinkers like, you know, we've solved the problem of evil. God doesn't have that kind of power to do it, and so it's not his fault. But it's like, well, God still chose on your view to give rise to this universe and lure these creatures into being. And recklessly, because like you said, he didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out. It could have turned out terribly. Giving this kind of, like I said in uh, the problem of evil, like giving car keys to a destructive teenager is irresponsible and so you know it's a big risk yeah and and the the
1: reality is god has so little control over what actually occurs and has no foreknowledge of what's going to occur and so he's he's taking a huge risk and if he gets going and gets you know it's like a a car that gets going down the freeway without a brake and without a steering wheel because you can't guide it where you want it to go and you can't stop it once it gets going. So what you've got is a murder machine.
0: Yeah, and you're not saying so you're not. I'm not. I can't help what it does. But like, well, you did start it at, in the process. So in a way, you are still responsible for that.
1: Yeah, you put the engine in and you handed the keys to the kid and, and you you showed him the accelerator and he started to
0: go. You just didn't
1: teach him how to turn the
0: wheel or how to stop. Exactly. Uh, but you say the Mormon view is superior because in the Mormon version of process thought, God had no choice about the fact that already higher order intelligences exist. God's choice wasn't whether they should exist, but what is the best that can be done for them given that they already do exist? Yeah, so what he's doing is an expression of
1: love. So we've got these these realities that exist, and God is embarking on a process of assisting them to grow and develop into something that has the greater capacity to love and experience joy in its existence. And so God is working with us from where we are, not taking the risk that we're talking about, but expressing his love. He's got to work with what he's got, there's no question. But if you love your children you just don't say, well, good luck there, hope things go well. You work with them and you don't say, well, you know, it's all just chaos and I'm just going to leave it chaos, because it's not all chaos. You've got people whose lives are at issue here. And so on the Mormon view. God isn't taking this risk. What he's doing is expressing his love and working with us from where we are.
0: All right, great. And then, yeah, you said, the choice was made for God already in the fact that there was no other possibility for further progress and growth towards divine glory and deification. Further, it was the choice of each intelligence whether to further progress. So God gave the choice to each, and it was the decision of each intelligence whether to seek the possibility of increased glory in relationship with God. So... Yeah, I'd say that has an advantage there. And then another part of Mormonism where we kind of get this process type thinking is the lectures on faith. And the lectures on faith basically say that God spake, chaos heard, and worlds came into order by reason of the faith there was in him, meaning God. So, according to this, order arises because of the responsive of faith of chaos or the intelligences, if you will, to God. Indeed, God's creative power to organize chaos depends on the responsive power of the chaos. So God does not simply create by divine fiat, but by persuading the chaotic realities to trust him and align with his words. And presumably, if chaos had not trusted God and thereby exercised faith in God, then chaos would not have been ordered on this view. And so there's another thing from Joseph Smith's teachings and then I wanted to now kind of talk about you know this is what we're getting at here is how does this deal with the problem of evil, but not just any evil, but the radical evils or you know just the kind of evils that all things considered weren't for a greater good, and what tools we have for that so you you gave those examples back in the when we discussed problem of evil of like let's say man getting cancer and slowly dying, or a car accidentally rolling over the head of a five year old girl or a girl being kidnapped and raped and murdered by someone. So how does the God on this Mormon process view deal with that? I mean say anything you want before, but where you kind of you've given an outline of a almost logical argument form or something like that, and I want to read through it and then have you talk about it, but this is different than what we talked about before, going through each piece. This is how we deal with evil specifically on this view. Especially these unjustified evils, if you will.
1: The greatest virtue of this view, it seems to me, is that it simply dissolves the problem of evil. There can't be a problem of evil because the evils that exist are easily explained. For instance, let's begin with the background information um, that is given. Rachel Ringan's death is not the end of the story because she's an eternal reality. And if we take that as the background, then the fact that she doesn't live a long time isn't decisive of whether her experience on Earth is a terrible tragedy or not, because it isn't the end. So the greatest tragedy isn't death, the greatest tragedy is failure to grow and learn. Let's then take her death. She's a, you've got a, a four-year-old girl who is kidnapped and she is then bludgeoned and raped and dies. How do we explain that? Well, given the fact that persons inherently are free and the fact that God acts by persuasive power and inspiration, he simply couldn't stop the murderer without the murderer's cooperation. The murderer had opened to him options, one of which was God's influence on him to be a good person and not do such things, but he also has the power and the free will to simply reject God's options that are offered to him. Well, you're saying, well, couldn't God have stopped him? And the answer is yes, if he'd cooperated. But the fact is, he didn't. Let's ask the basic question, well, what could God do? Couldn't he interfere with his brain function to make it so, like, he couldn't form the ideas, for instance, to commit these kinds of acts? And the answer is that God may have even attempted to do so, but brain activity may not always be open to God's persuasive influence with such great speed on the process view. It takes time, and whether the molecules and subsystems of the brain will respond to the lure is up to the creativity of those basic realities. And God doesn't control them. So sometimes it may work. Sometimes people may be influenced or inspired not to do the evil things. But that's not the way it always is because people are also free to shut out the light of God that's being offered to them. God didn't have foreknowledge that the act would occur. And his persuasive influence, therefore, must begin when there is a clear plan that is created. It's not like he could plan from all eternity and begin now to influence him because that it just that just isn't available. The bottom line is there just wasn't enough time, and given the evil propensities of her murderer, God's persuasive power failed in this instance, even though undoubtedly it was present and seeking for the best outcome. The same explanation would be given of the car that rolled over my friend's daughter. The natural law of gravity is a very powerful natural force, and if he could get all of the entities in the car brakes to cooperate, then the car brakes would not have given way. And in fact, the brake was probably never set, but gravity just overcame the inertia at rest of the car at that particular moment and began to roll backward. Couldn't God stop that from occurring? And the answer is, well, sometimes he might be able to if the basic realities cooperate, but generally they're not going to. And it takes a good deal of time, for, again, for God to be able to bring about those kinds of results. So it's easy to explain even radical evils on this view because it simply dissolves the problem. God does not have the kind of power necessary to stop these events from occurring, even if his maximal power is exercised to stop it. And I want to say something else. On this view, God is always doing the best he can do. <laughs> okay, It's just that the best he can do just isn't good enough sometimes. Evil things happen, even though God's doing the best he can do. Now contrast that with the view where God's doing the best he can do and these kinds of radical evils occur anyway. So we'd say, you know, God's doing the best he could do. On average 10,000 people a day were, you know, went to the ovens in Germany during World War II, the Jews. The best that God could do on the process view is allow, you know, he couldn't stop it. There was no way that that he had the power to stop that from occurring. So the best he could do was 10,000 Jews a day in the ovens. On the other hand, we want to say on the traditional view, the best that God could do was to agree that it's okay for 10,000 Jews to go to the ovens. Which view is morally preferable? Clearly, I think the process view is morally preferable. It gives rise to other problems, but I'd rather have a God who's doing the best he can do and can't stop that than a God who's doing the best he can do and thinks that's just okay.
0: Yeah. So now I'm going to read through this argument, and it is an argument, and in argument, like, logical form. and so. You probably have to read it to get the full effect of it, because some of the things refer back to other parts of the argument to make sense, and you know, you have to be able to read it to do that rather than me go back and read everything that it's referring to. Alright, so what we're going to now talk about here is kind of a global response of how God would respond to the problem of evil on this process view. One, God is almighty, omniscient, all good, and exists. That's kind of what we're trying to prove here, I guess, or that's just the basic thing we're starting with. Two God is conditioned by the existence of co-eternal realities such as a. Inherently free and self-determining intelligences, which are necessarily existing selves, b. Chaotic mass energy, c. Metaphysical and moral principles of love which require that God only act persuasively, d. Physical laws or regularities defining how low-grade entities act, and then 3. God is almighty if he can p- potentially persuade the optimal realization of potential among states of affairs, i.e. power to bring about all states of affairs that are consistent with there being other eternally existing realities. And then four, an omniscient being knows all that is knowable up until now. And number five, a perfectly good being prevents all evils and promotes all good it can without thereby preventing a greater good. And then that brings us to six, moral evils occur and God is not responsible for them because a. Human nature is uncreated. B. Humans are inherently self-determining and categorically free so that God cannot unilaterally bring about human choices. C. Humans are morally imperfect and potentially perfectible. And D. God's purpose in creation is to provide the opportunity for intellectual and moral development of persons and glorification of the world. E. Moral opposition is necessary to moral development. F. God did not create human nature, either virtuous or depraved, and humans sometimes choose evil. H. God is justified in not contravening evil moral choices. Number seven, natural evils occur and God is not blameworthy for them because A. Chaotic mass energy is uncreated. B. The laws governing mass energy depend in part on the inherent powers of eternal actualities and on God's concurring light, from 2B again and 2D c. The organization of actualities to reflect stable natural regularities reflecting causal principles is necessary for biological life to evolve and moral choices to be possible. d. Adverse physical circumstances may enhance moral and intellectual development of intelligences depending on their free response to such challenges. e. The nature of causal principles is such that many indiscriminate natural evils occur that God cannot prevent. f god may justifiably allow some natural evils that he could otherwise prevent and then we move on to eight so whatever evils occur are a unpreventable by god consistent with individual autonomy b unpreventable by god without thereby preventing a greater good and c are unpreventable by god without cooperation of the basic realities in the world that's the argument and again like i said you'll have to read it to kind of see the premises referring back to earlier parts of the argument But, I mean, that kind of lays it out. So that's just kind of basically what you said before I went into the argument that God is conditioned by these things, and he can't act unilaterally, basically. And so, therefore, he can't unilaterally stop these things. That's pretty much it, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is a complete theodicy. In other words, it explains very adequately why the kinds of evils that occur occur consistent with God's goodness and existence. That's what a theodicy is about and the question is is it satisfying so we have the existential problem of evil also the sense that we have been betrayed or that the evils that occur are so outrageous that we wouldn't trust any being that could stop them would stop them or we wouldn't trust a being if he couldn't stop them because he just doesn't have the power to make our lives adequate
0: all right so now well, obviously we have to talk about some criticisms of process the Odyssey. first and foremost it seems inconsistent with traditional views of God's power. So you state that. You say the strongest argument against process theodicy is that God does not have perfect power if he cannot exercise coercive power. Since we know that we as humans can, for example, coerce our children by picking them up and putting them into bed when they resist us, we know that coercive power is possible. But if God lacks this power, then he lacks a kind of power that is logically possible to have.
1: And we can add, it may be a kind of power that it would be good to have because, you know, if children are going to run out into the road and we see it and we can stop them from running in front of a car, we're going to do it every single time. And that's just consistent with a a decent person and and normal human power. So what we're saying is it would be good if on some occasions, it would be for the best if God actually had this kind of coercive power that he could exercise from time to time.
0: And then point out that the mere fact that God's power is conditioned by other realities, does not in itself render this God less worthy of worship or make him less perfect. And David Ray Griffin brings up why that may be in this.
1: Probably ought to just mention David Ray Griffin is a leading process thinker. He was at Claremont for a number of years and wrote one of the best books on the problem of evil ever written, God, Power, and Evil, which has had a pretty big influence on me. I think it's a brilliant book. And at least for that, I have a great deal of respect for David Ray Griffin's efforts here.
0: Yeah, he's, like I said, very influential in in the process world. So he says, I conceive God to be perfect in power as well as goodness, which means having the greatest power it is possible for one being to have. Accordingly, what is at issue is not a God whose power is imperfect in contrast with a God whose power is perfect. Rather, what we have here is a conflict between two conceptions of perfect power.
1: Yeah, and the, the question is, in order for God to be worthy of our worship, does he have to have the kind of power where he can ensure the realization of his purposes for sure, or be subject to the whims of chaos and opposing forces that he can't control? I think it's a very good question. And I, I you know, obviously the way I've stated, it, I'm kind of leaning toward the view that it, it would be nice if God had more power on a number of occasions and a different kind of power on a number of occasions. I tend to believe that a God who can effectuate his will unilaterally has a, a more perfect kind of power than one who is subject to and is at the mercy of other forces that he just can't control. We could give a number of examples. I have a doctor who has the ability and knowledge to completely control viruses, for instance. I would say this is a very good doctor. On the other hand, I have a doctor who just doesn't have the kind of knowledge or the ability to do the experiments to be able to eradicate these kinds of illnesses. Now, the fact is is that doctors don't have the ability to eradicate all of these. There's nobody who's that intelligent, but it would be really nice if there were such a doctor.
0: But as like I said, it's basically two different ideas on what is acceptable as power and what that means and you know I tend to to the degree in this concept, you know, agree that perhaps persuasive power is always morally superior if that's I mean if God is having it's hard on maybe a Mormon view saying that, you know, God's power arises from just back to lectures on faith, that that, that chaos will hear him to some degree is quite an impressive power. And, you know, if it has faith in him and that's how worlds are formed and all that. I mean, so maybe on a grand scale, it's a greater power than just, but I mean, I would agree with you. Everyone's like, well, if God can't make miraculous things happen, then clearly that's worse than if he could, uh, at least from certain perspectives.
1: Well, let's put it this way. If he could bring about these results through persuasion, that would be best. But it's still good and preferable if he doesn't have that kind of power that he can do it coercively. So for instance, it would be nice if I could persuade children not to run into the street and teach them appropriately so that they don't do it. But dang it, from time to time, they're just going to do it. I've had three-year-olds who've done this on a constant basis. And it's not that they're stupid. Their brains are just not formed. And so the reality is, is that it is loving and it is a better kind of power that I can actually coercively stop them from running into the street to be hit by a car. It's good that on those occasions, I have that kind of power. And is it a morally imperfect power that I exercise? No, I thought when I was exercising it, it was a very loving thing that I was doing. <laughs> so I don't see this kind of a comparison of persuasion always being morally superior to be such a clear-cut case.
0: Yeah, and maybe not just morally superior, but just saying that this is an adequate power to be an object worthy of worship, I suppose is kind of what David Ray Griffin was meaning there. The, the fact is, is what he's saying
1: is that it's a choice between two different metaphysical views of reality. You can have a metaphysical view where God can do everything by fiat, and then you've got a lot of explaining to do, or you can have a metaphysical view which demonstrates and shows why things occur the way that we experience them, why it takes so long for evolution to occur, for instance, and why really bad things happen. That's the kind of world we actually live in. I think that David Ray Griffin would say that view of reality is more adequate to the facts than the view of a fiat God. And that I would agree with him.
0: Yeah, and it leads into this thing he says which I, I put in here because I thought it was a great quote, and you kind of said it earlier, but I read it here. He says, one of the stranger complaints is that given the enormity of evil in the world, a deity that is doing its best somehow is not worthy of worship. And the implication is that a deity that is not doing its best is worthy of worship. You know, so this is just saying <laughs> the classical God that can stop all evil and just chooses not to for some purpose that seems, you know, it's it's his purposes, but like, you know, sometimes I'd don't really care about God's purposes. You should be stopping this evil if you can. How dare you not? Yeah,
1: for everything we can see, remember the conclusion that my argument reached in the very first podcast on the problem of evil. It's a very significant conclusion, and that is, as far as we can see, the Omni-God does not exist. Now, it may be that there are things so far beyond us that we're like ants in trying to understand reality, and therefore we just don't have any business engaging in this kind of a discussion. But I tend to think that that is a real cop-out. And I tend to think that the reality is that we know quite enough to know that there are tragedies and, and, and there are things that occur that it would be better off, all things considered, that they not occur. And in fact, I would say it's so obvious that it's painfully obvious, with emphasis on the pain. And that the fact that we're in pain is painfully obvious. I get a kick, you know, the Augustinians say that all evil is really just privation of good. It's not, there's no positive reality to it, it's just lacking goodness. But when you're in pain, you're not experiencing a lack of existence or reality. You're experiencing painful reality, and the pain proves that it's a pain, because to experience pain, all you have to do is be in pain. Yeah, it's, it's real. And so the notion that this is kind of an appearance and, and or mere appearance, and everything else is, it really is just a privation of being, has never made any sense to me.
0: Two other problems, and I think this one, at least maybe on the Mormon view, might be the biggest problem for this process view is the the problem of prayer on this view. So, at least petitionary prayer.
1: I would say the problem of the resurrection is the biggest problem. And I think that on the process view, actually, the problem of prayer is a virtue of process thought, not a problem. But we'll we'll get to that.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So, just basically, petitionary prayer is traditionally thought about, meaning I ask God to basically unilaterally do something for me, is not really possible on this view but like you said it has the virtue of being more like you know God is already doing let, let's say that so let's say your neighbor is dying from cancer and you say please God help Mary Beth heal from this cancer will you help her out well that's kind of implying that he's not already doing that so on the process view God is already doing all that he can do and your prayer maybe not be that helpful but i think more at least on the process view more people would say that you know a prayer would be more like to get you in alignment to be more open to the persuasion of god so that you can go help mary beth in some way not necessarily to heal the cancer but i'm going to do a deja
1: vu we actually had a full two podcasts on the problem of prayer
0: this was clear back
1: in chapter two of volume two exploring mormon thought and the problems of theism and the love of god And we talked about the problem of prayer there, and the problem consists in precisely the fact that you've mentioned, God is already committed to doing the best that He can. He doesn't wait for your prayer to do it. And so the supposition that He needs your prayer in order to effectuate His will, at least on the traditional view, is just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Here's where the great virtue of process thought comes in, I think. The capacity that God has to effectuate reality in the universe depends on our cooperation and our influence. When we pray, we are adding our influence to God's. And so by praying, we are empowering God, who is empowering us, (laughs) to bring about results that otherwise may not be achievable. On this view, petitionary prayer makes a darn good deal of sense simply because we may create a possibility for realizing what we desire to have effectuated by the prayer that just doesn't exist without us cooperating with God. And corporate prayer makes even more sense. By, what do I mean by corporate prayer? Large bodies of people praying together and all adding their influence to the prayer so that they are all influencing reality to bring about a certain result. The perfect expression of this is the prayer circle in the temple, where everybody is united and all of their prayers are united in one. And so on this view, prayer empowers God to do what otherwise could not be done. I think it's a marvelous view of of petitionary prayer, and the only one, frankly, that's ever really made sense to me.
0: All right, great. And then, I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but also just scriptural issues, and just, you know, it seems that there are several times that the authors attribute things that would have to be coercive acts to God. For example, it would be kind of hard on this view to see how God could part the Red Sea, or, like you mentioned... The hardest thing that I think is the biggest problem for Christians is that, for example, Jesus performed miracles. And to perform a miracle, you'd kind of have to have things happening fast and, you know, at once. And so I'll just read this. You say, on a process view, miracles would probably be defined something like the loving persuasion of God remarkably influencing a situation or intelligence in an unusual way. That is contrary to expectation based on common experience. But the thing is, that can't happen at will for God. So the biggest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, seems like he couldn't quite do it, you know? I mean, there, there's ways you could maybe make it work, but it, you couldn't say, I'm going to make this happen in three days. Like
1: The best argument for the process view on the resurrection of Jesus is that the kind of life he had led so fully embodied God's will that there was this remnant of this power still residing in his material body. And so he was able to persuade the constituents of his body to reorganize themselves in order to be able to carry out life. The problem with this view is that that would give us a continuation of mortal life, not the kind of immortal life and glorified being that we find Christ appearing as. I mean, I, just, I don't see any way to explain what the scriptures are actually claiming occurred. Let me compound the fact by the fact that it's not just Christ who resurrects, the view of the scriptures, and clearly the view of the Mormon scriptures, is that we will all be resurrected. I see no way that the process thought can accommodate that that notion of a miracle where it occurs all at once. Now, I guess you could argue maybe the resurrection will take long periods of evolution in order to effectuate it so that we actually have glorified bodies, but that's not the way the scriptures lay it out. Now, let's talk about scripture and revelation because that's one thing that the process view actually makes sense of. In fact, my view of co-creative participation as the basis of revelation is a process view of revelation. And we find this in scripture where we find human views that are expressed along with the divine influence of revelation that enlightens people. So we have this natural mixture of human language and thought as a constraining factor that is inspired by and reflects the inspiration of God in its expression but God can't simply coerce us to get it right. It may take us a while to fully embody God's light into our lives so that we actually begin to fully grasp what God is disclosing to us. When it comes right down to it, I think that the process view makes very good sense of the actual reality of what we have in Scripture. I think it makes a good deal of sense of revelation that's expressed in Scripture, and I can tell you it fully makes sense of my own experiences of personal revelation. What it doesn't make any sense of are the kinds of things that we see occurring where, for instance, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Now that could occur if every single particle of his body just remarkably agreed with God's initial aim for it, the influence that God is giving to every particle of his body to reanimate itself. That could occur. It's not logically impossible, it's just fantastically unlikely. Improbable, yeah. Highly improbable. Now, now times that improbability by every person who's ever existed, and there's just I just look at that and just shake my head and just say, yeah, I don't think I can accommodate that fact on a process view.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'll bring this up later, but like you said, scriptures, there's a lot of ways you can maybe question some of the historicity and, you know, don't want to do that too much, otherwise they lose, you know, some of their authority and power. But there's some precedence for that there. And also, like you said, process view generally is arrived at by people who are looking at the other views and be like, you know what, I'm sorry, there is this evil in the world, and if there's a God that could prevent it and he doesn't, then he's not a God I would want to be associated with. And so, at least in my experience, one of the main draws of process thought is that for some people that may have otherwise been atheist, process thought gives them a God that they can believe in. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's a consolation prize for people that just want to believe in God, but it does provide people with something that they can believe in, as opposed to this omni-god, which, you know, is abhorrent and kind of a monster. Yeah, I
1: think that the process view is clearly superior to every form of classical theism that accepts creation ex nihilo or creation out of nothing. Every view that would give God the kind of power to stop the kinds of radical evils that we see occurring, and just have his will unilaterally recognized in the world. The greatest virtue of the process view is, of course, that it's a full explanation of the kinds of evils that we experience in our real lives and is also very effective at explaining what we actually find in the world and the way that the scriptures are given and the kind of authority that they have. It has a hard time fitting with the kinds of facts that we've talked about and, you know, as a result, maybe that's the challenge for the process philosophers to come up with some kind of a reasonable and persuasive way of explaining how what is explained in scripture is plausible. At least to date, that hasn't occurred for me on this view.
0: Well, I mean, they've shown maybe it's plausible, but like I said, it couldn't necessarily be exactly the way it's described because it might not have happened. Like, if Jesus gets up on the ship when the storm is going and says, peace be still, it's possible that that might not have happened. And so Jesus would look rather stupid.
1: (laughs) It's all logically possible. It's just contraindicated by the theory that is presented in the process view. And as I said, when we consider the resurrection of every living being, most process thinkers don't believe in life after death, for instance. So, for instance, the death of Rachel Runyon is a complete tragedy that will never really, for her at least, be made up. There's no real value for her in this. And so the tragedies are not merely tragedies. They're complete, final tragedies, which also I think is inconsistent with the kind of hope that is present in the Christian revelation. Now, there are Christian process philosophers who would suggest that, well, Maybe we can accommodate the view of life after death on this view. But at best, it's an accommodation with a difficult explanation.
0: Does a, a Mormon process view give any more tools to work with there?
1: Yeah, it changes it completely. Because remember, we begin with eternal realities that already exist as a part of the
0: universe. And they cannot not exist, yeah. So we cannot stop existing by necessity.
1: Yeah, yeah. So life after death is a given on that worldview because it's implicit in the very metaphysic that we've described.
0: Next in the chapter, you kind of go over a view that's very analogous and close to process view, but it's something that's so close we want to differentiate it. So there's a, a very famous theologian philosopher by the name of William Hasker, and he's famous in what's called open theism, which is similar to process thought, but it still maintains creation ex nihilo, well, it says, you know, God can't know the future, and so there's, like, free will defenses in full effect there and all that. But they kind of view God as more self-limiting, meaning, yes, all these limits are still there in the kind of the same way the process does, but it's not necessarily because it's metaphysically impossible for God to use this kind of power, but that he's just choosing not to use it. And then you talk about that a bit. So if you want to just kind of sum up what you talk about there in the chapter.
1: What Hasker would argue is that Open theism, at least, is on par with process thought because like process thought, for open theists God lacks foreknowledge of the future and he, Hasker puts it like this, but he's wrong, cannot bring about or control the free acts of creatures. And so Hasker argues that that view absolves God because God doesn't control the free decisions themselves that are made. However, what he's saying is just false. God could control those decisions. So, for instance, Rachel Runyon's murder would be very easy to just cause a local aneurysm that would cause him to black out for a while. God could do a million things to make it so that he's incapable of carrying out what he sets to carry out. And if he could have done it, then he should have exercised coercive power to override the free will of her murder. Because that's what any decent person would have done who was there and had power to do it without any danger to him or herself. He's therefore culpable for failure to control the misuse of freedom by his creatures given the assumptions of free will theism. So I think that any view that accepts creation ex nihilo is just going to have this problem. On that view, God is self-limiting. He doesn't do it because he chooses to let free will play out. Now, it may be that God has very good reasons for not stopping the free acts of human beings. But as I said, by our lights, any even halfway decent human being who had the power to do without risk to themselves, it's morally obligated to stop it from occurring. And God isn't the exception to moral obligations. He's the expression of them. And so, what I want to say is that I don't think that free will theism is even remotely on par with process thought in its ability to explain the actual kinds of evils that we experience in the world. You know, if what we're saying is, I think that people can accept this view because they can say, you know what, this is the best fit with the world I actually experience. And it's the only view of a God that I would be willing to accept because if God could stop these things and chooses not to, I rebel, I, I wouldn't worship that kind of a God. I mean, who would want that kind of God, wouldn't want to spend a weekend with him, let alone the eternity. And so the bottom line is, is that there are such huge benefits to this view, it's incumbent on those who accept this kind of a process view to then endeavor to say, okay, we have these other commitments of a world view. Are there ways to accommodate them? And as I've already admitted, yeah, these kind of things are just barely possible on the process view, that is to say they're not logically impossible. But then I suppose a 14-headed horse with 2 million hooves is also logically possible. That doesn't make it very likely. (laughs) So the bottom line is that there's still work to be done on this process theodicy, and I haven't answered all of them. But what I have done is taken a Mormon view, shown how it works within the process view, and strengthens the process view considerably. In my opinion, the Mormon process view is vastly superior to the conventional process view that has been expressed by the main process thinkers. And so I think that there's a lot that can be learned by process thinkers from the Mormon
0: worldview. And then, yeah, I just want to read these last two paragraphs, maybe talk about them a little bit, but we're almost done here. So in conclusion, you say, the real message of this process Odyssey is that God cannot do it all alone. He needs our cooperation to accomplish his purpose for this world. The fact that God needs us to cooperate in his project of creating a world worth living in means that something real is at stake in our moral decisions and cooperative efforts to improve the world. We cannot sit by assured that God has everything in hand and the world will turn out just fine regardless of what we do. And then this last part I really liked. You you say, if adding our action and faith to God's light that acts through imminent persuasive influence in the world increases the likelihood of overcoming heinous moral acts, diseases, natural disasters, cancer, and so forth, ad nauseum, then we are maximally morally motivated to put down this stupid book, and I guess I would say stop listening to this stupid podcast, and get to work making the world a better place as co-creators of the world with God. And what's great about that, just like I said, is, I don't know, I was thinking about this, and as humans... I, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for other people, but for me personally, I guess logically it is possible that all this religion stuff might just you know kind of be made up mumbo jumbo, and it, it might be bullcrap. You know, that's one logical possibility, and then the other that I'm very strongly pulled to that it's not. I you know I choose to believe that it's real. But the virtue of a process theodicy is this view right here that even if you were wrong, that there wasn't God motivating you to do all the things. The the virtue of this view over other traditional Christian views and even many Mormon views, is that you are maximally morally obligated to start going and doing things, because you can't just sit by and say, you know what, Ah, it's too bad that, you know, there's starving kids in Africa, but, you know, I mean, it's part of God's plan, and he'll probably take care of it, everything will be fine. Uh, No, God's not going to take care of it unilaterally, it's up to us, and I find that very compelling.
1: I do too, and I will go so far as to say that as far as the pragmatic view, one that actually works in the world, this is the best view. Not as good as the view that I'm going to present next, because it's my view, which I think is also maximally motivating. But the bottom line is, is this view that we are co cooperators with God in bringing about reality, and He needs us to effectuate His purposes. He can't do it without us. What this does is it says to us, you know, you can't just assume things are going to be all for the best, which I think is what happens all the time. I actually know a person who is an evangelical. And every single response is, well, it's God's will, so it's for the best. And I'm just shaking my head, just looking at him and going, oh my gosh, that's just fatalism. That's just nonsense. I don't know how you live a life like that, just in absolute passive resolve that nothing really matters that you do. On this view, everything we do matters, and it's all just dripping with moral significance and meaning, and the world depends upon us, and so pragmatically this is the view that i think is most consonant with getting christians off their duffs and expressing loving works for others
0: thank you for joining us to support the podcast donate at exploringmormonthought.com follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring mormon thought